if you're truly in high inflation, a central bank can't save you. At the start of this year, people were pricing equities. They said, I'll settle for 5.75%. Think of that as your discount rate. You take exactly the same cash flows and discount them at 9%. I'm surprised the market's not down more. Very excited to welcome to Forward Guidance, Aswath Zamotarin, Professor of Valuation and Corporate Finance at the NYU Stern School of Business. Professor, great to have you here. Great to be with you. I've heard you say that you have a sleep test for investments. What is your sleep test? And if we were to say, wind back the clock a year when asset prices, stocks, bonds were more richly valued, what, if anything, was keeping you up then? And what is uh, keeping you up now that in 2022? Well, the essence of a sleep test is nothing keeps you up. I mean, that's, that's, that is the sleep test. Now, if you're, um, if you're losing sleep, lying awake at night because uh, what's happening to your portfolio in good ways or bad ways, then I think you're getting a signal that you're taking on more risk than you should be taking. You're making investments in things you shouldn't be investing in. Life's too short to be worrying about what's in your portfolio all the time. Doesn't mean you think, don't think about your portfolio, but if, it's, if you're obsessed about your portfolio, if it's a thing that you go to bed thinking about and wake up thinking about, then clearly there is something that is off about what you've designed your portfolio to be. The reason we worry is not because of what our portfolio is doing, but the kinds of changes we have to make in our lifestyle if our portfolios don't work out the way they, they, way they should. I mean, not all of us are lucky. I mean, for some of us, we are dependent on not just the income we earn from our jobs, but our portfolio income to keep our lifestyles going. And I sympathize for those people for, because for them, it, it, is a, it makes a difference as to whether stocks are up 20% or down 20%. But if you have a choice, you want to create portfolios that even if things don't go well, you're not changing the way you live because of what your portfolio is doing. I mean, one signal that you've overinvested in risky assets and stocks is if a 20% drop in your portfolio changes where you live, changes what you eat, changes where you send your kids to school. Because you were probably overreaching in the first place and now that overreaching is caught up with you. So I think that when, when that's the case, we often tend to do things that are not good for us as investors. We, we know we take bets that are too big. It's like being in a casino and finding yourself behind and trying to make up for it. And behaviorally, we know that we don't act in very sensible ways as human beings when we're trying to get back something that we've already lost. There are always things that will worry you about risk. That's the nature of equities. And if it's not one thing, it's going to be something else. I mean, name me one time in the last 20 years when you haven't had something to think about that's a macro issue. Mm. But so what? I mean, that's the nature of risk. I don't worry in, in I didn't worry in November of 2008. I didn't worry in July of 2008. What's worrying going to do anyway? It's not going to get you your money back. So what's the point of worrying? Just recognize that there are things that are out of your control, that your portfolio will swing for reasons that you don't quite understand, and sometimes for reasons that you do understand, but only in hindsight. We know what's driven stocks over the last year. It's inflation. We knew it was already a an issue in 2021. And I think that the Fed, in a sense, was late to kind of, you know, wake up to that reality. And I think we're paying a price for it now. 
what is the mechanism by which inflation impacts asset prices? Because on the face of it, if uh, you know a cup of coffee at Starbucks costs four dollars and now it costs five dollars, it might you know, impact uh, incre- increase revenues. I think you put your finger on on the issue that will drive whether assets can keep up with inflation. I mean, let's take a limiting case. A bond is an asset, right? But with a bond, you get a fixed coupon. You set the coupon based on inflation at the time you buy the bond. So let's say inflation is 2%. You might set the coupon at 3% and say, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm covering inflation and getting an extra 1%. Inflation pops up to 5%. You're in trouble because you can't go back and renegotiate the coupon. You're stuck with a 3% coupon. So when inflation is unexpectedly high, any fixed income security is going to lose value. Now let's turn to equities. You're saying those are not fixed income. Why can't my cash flows keep up with inflation? In theory, no reason why they cannot. But the question of whether they can will depend on the company. If your company has pricing power, is able to pass through the inflation into its products, then I think it's entirely plausible that as inflation goes up, your cash flows also grow up, go up proportionately and you're not hurt too much. But if, you're, if you don't have pricing power, and there are sectors where you don't have pricing power because of competition, because of other issues, then you get squeezed. Take the airline business. Your costs go up as fuel prices go up. You might not have much pricing power because it's an incredibly competitive space, but raising ticket prices until recently used to be very difficult to do. So inflation goes up, your cash flows don't go up with inflation. So the question of whether you will be okay investing in a company in the face of inflation depends very much on the company, the kind of company you're looking at. But there is a side cost when inflation becomes high. I mean, I've told people it's not that inflation is high that should worry you. It's that inflation is, um, is unpredictable. Now, I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. Let's say you have two economies. The first has 7% inflation. The second has 2% inflation. And I asked you, which one would you rather be in? Now, most people say, I'd rather be in the 2% inflation economy. But let me add a clarification. Let's assume the 7% inflation economy, the 7% inflation rate is guaranteed to stay at 7% forever. And the 2% inflation economy, it swings all over the place. 5% one year, minus 2% the next Running a business in the first economy with 7% guaranteed inflation, investing in that market is far easier than investing in a market with 2% inflation where it's variable. It's not the level of inflation, but uncertainty about inflation that makes it so deadly. And here's the reality. High inflation seems to go with high uncertainty about inflation. This This is historically true. So when inflation drops to 2%, it tends to become more predictable as well. Inflation climbs to 6%, it becomes more unpredictable, which adds risk to every layer of business and investing, which shows up as higher risk premiums, lower prices for assets. So even if your cash flows keep up with inflation, if inflation becomes higher because the uncertainty that comes with the higher inflation, I would argue that your company is going to be valued lower simply because of that higher risk. That's now at a macro level. Can you explain what you mean by risk premium? And I think there are two risk premium I like to explore. One is the equity risk premium for stocks. And the other, uh, it's, it's, I think it's related, is sort of just uh, 
time premium. In, in other words, a 30-year bond is, is more risky than a, a two-year bond. Uh, and similarly, perhaps a you know, uh, future-oriented electric vehicle company is you know, uh, likely perhaps to have a different equity risk premium and time premium than, like, let's say, a coal company that uh, you know, may be phased out pretty soon. So yeah, tell us about those sort of premium. I, I'm not sure the second premium even exists. Is a 30-year bond more risky than a two-year bond? In what sense? If you have a 30-year time horizon, a 30-year bond is less risky. So the, if you're talking about a time value of money, that's different. I mean, so, I, and I think you're conflating two different issues when okay, you mix yeah. in an electric vehicle company with cash flows way out in the future. Even if your risk premium stays at 6% every year forever, if all of your cash flows are way out in the future, the effect of that 6% premium is going to be far greater on the electric vehicle company than on a mature company because more of its cash flows happen way out in the future. So time takes care of itself. The risk premium though is the price that you're demanding for taking on risk. As investors, as human beings, we're risk averse. We've known that for a very long time. I mean, as human beings, we're also irrational. We behave in strange ways. We're risk averse on some things, but we take stupid risks at other times. I give the example, of somebody who gets into his car, puts on a seatbelt, that's a risk-averse thing to do, then backs out of his driveway at 70 miles an hour and takes off down a side street, driving really fast. So as human beings, our relationship with risk is strange. While you know, there are things we do where we act like we're risk lovers. You walk into a casino or you buy a lottery ticket, you're buying an investment where your expected value is actually negative, but you're doing it because of the big upside you think you can get. But in big investments, on the big decisions of our life, we tend to be risk averse. What does that mean? To get you to invest in something risky, I've got to offer you a reward. Otherwise, you're never going to invest in stocks. If you're going to make the same return on stocks as you do by buying treasury bonds, why would you ever buy stocks? Why expose yourself? to that uncertainty and the stomach churning that'll come with investing in equities, if you can get exactly the same return investing in something that is predictable and guaranteed. So to get investors to invest in equity markets, you gotta offer them a premium. And that premium takes the form of something you add on to the risk-free rate. So if you can make 2% risk-free, I've gotta offer you five, six, seven. Think of the risk premium as the difference between what I need to offer you to invest in something risky and what you could make on something guaranteed. Already you can see that this is going to be person specific. For more risk averse people, the premium is going to be larger. For less risk averse people, it's going to be smaller. It's going to vary across time. Why? Because in, there are times when we worry more. 2008, November of 2008, we were terrified of what the world was going to bring us. We were all more risk averse. So risk premiums, vary across people and vary across time. It makes it incredibly challenging to estimate what it is. But there is a consensus risk premium. Whether we can estimate it correctly or not is up for grabs. But in the market at any point in time, there is a consensus number based on demand and supply. And that number shifts on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute basis. And we need to have a sense of what that is as investors. I mean, I do valuation. I need that risk premium as an input to value a company. And for the longest time, I was taught when I went through school that the way you get it is by looking at history. Look at the last 80 years. Look at the last 100 years. 
And that struck me as wrong for two reasons. One is it's incredibly backward looking when I want a forward looking number. And second, it's static. I could be in the middle of the worst crisis in history and I'm looking backwards and saying, hey, nothing's wrong. So basically, about 30 years ago, I devised a different way of estimating risk premiums. It's a forward-looking dynamic premium. And it sounds like rocket science, but it's actually very simple. When you get scared as an investor, guess what you do? You sell. You sell stocks. You push down the price. The price you pay for something is the best indicator of what you think about risk at that point in time. So what I do to estimate the equity risk premium is I take the S&P 500 and I look at the price of the index and the expected cash flows. And I back out from the price what people are demanding as a rate of return. So it's not a question of whether I like that number or not. It is the price of risk in the market today. Just to give you an indication of how much that number has shifted just in 2022. At the start of 2022, that risk premium based on where the index was priced was about 4.24%, January 1st, 2022. By July 1st, that number had risen to 6%. People were demanding a larger risk premium. And if you're wondering why, just look around you, look at how much more scared we are about a potential recession, about what the Fed will do, about inflation. The equity risk premium is the receptacle for all our hopes and fears. So whatever happens out there eventually finds its way, in good ways or bad ways, into the equity risk premium. So that's it. The equity risk premium is a price of risk. It's not an abstraction. It's a reality. It is the number that reflects where markets are now and where you can expect them to go in the future. So in terms of the valuation of equities, there's the future cash flows, which by its very nature are an estimate because it's in the future. And then it's the rate at which those cash flows are discounted back to the present. And that discount rate has two variables, the risk-free rate and then the equity risk premium on top of that. You just uh, elaborated upon the equity risk premium. Uh, What, if anything, was the impact of the increase in risk-free rates, which typically refers to very safe assets like uh, treasury bonds, you know, the 10-year treasury note, the two-year treasury note, uh, those have jumped extremely higher, which I I think is on a historical basis, so it's very, very volatile. Um, To what degree is that responsible for the compression in equity values versus the equity risk premium? And how do you sort of think about which one is is causing which? Well, I think you're looking at the symptom, not the cost. Both the risk-free rate and the risk premium are outputs from a process. I mean, think back. Why have why has the T-bond rate gone up? It's because of worries about inflation. And if you think inflation is going to be higher, the T-bond rate is going to be higher. Now, we said higher inflation also goes with higher uncertainty about inflation. So in addition to the risk-free rate going up, it's also pushed up the risk premium. And if you have both risk-free rates and risk premiums going up, it puts a downward drag on equities that's very difficult to overcome. The total expected return, which is the risk-free rate plus the risk premium, started the year at 5.75%. Just to give you some perspective, that's a historic low. That number used to be 10% in the 1990s, 12% in the 1980s. It used to be 8 or 9% in the, ni- in the 2000 to 2010. It's down to 5.75%. Investors were pricing stocks collectively to earn about 5.75%. Why was it so low? The risk-free rate was low, one point, you know, it was it was 1.51%, and the equity risk premium was low. Low plus low gives you low. Both those numbers have popped up. And at the start 
of September 2022. That number is close to 9%. In other words, at the start of this year, people were pricing equities. They said, I'll settle for 5.75%. Think of that as your discount rate. You take exactly the same cash flows and discount them at 9%. I'm surprised the market's not down more. In fact, if you take those just that change, you should have a much bigger impact. In fact, what's nullified some of that impact is some of it can be fed through into your cash flows. Now, that might be delusional, but investors, in a sense, are adjusting earnings and cash flows to higher inflation as well, which explains why markets are not down 40% rather than 15 or 20%. And how do you think about uh, forward estimates of cash flows? Because you have a model that... There's only kind of one thing you that is that is like certain, which is the ten year treasury note or the discount rate. but uh, the the forward expectations to, um, how, how do you measure that because it's it must be very, very hard. You look at analyst estimates. Are you talking about the index? Or are you talking for an individual company? S- sorry, the index, yeah, yeah. And the index is not that hard, right? The law of large numbers helps you out. You're going to be less wrong in the collective earnings and cash flows for an index than you will be on an individual company. It's far more difficult estimating what the numbers will be for an individual company because strange things can happen to companies. So it's actually not that hard estimating earnings and cash flows for an index like the S&P 500. I mean, there might be things that you're not fully factoring in, which is how how deep will the recession be? How long will it last? And I personally think that analysts are being a little too optimistic about forward earnings for the index. But it's actually not. I mean, to me, that's you're going to be within 5% of the number. In my, in my 30 years of tracking earnings for the S&P 500, especially if you use top-down estimates, people estimating earnings for the entire index. I mean, these are not earnings estimated by looking at 500 companies and adding them up. These are earnings that are estimated by people who track the aggregate earnings. You're almost never off by more than 5%. Unless you have a true shock like you did in 2008, you know, when, you had a, when you had a crisis that affected the earnings. I mean, those are things that you cannot quite foresee and build in. And it's unfair to hold analysts up and say, why do you see that coming? Because those things will come and that's why there's risk. And that's why we demand a risk premium. I'm actually uh, surprised to hear you say that forward estimates of the S&P 500 aggregate earnings are so accurate within 5%. I, I would have thought that it would have been Sub- subject to uh, sort of the whims of the market. In other words, in March and April of 2020, estimates were way too low. To do with markets. No, no, wait. Earnings have nothing to do with markets. Earnings have to do with what companies can produce. The market price can be all over the place. But we're talking about earnings, right? We're not forecasting the price. We're forecasting earnings. The earnings collectively for 500 companies, the 500 largest companies in the U.S., are not going to jump 30% above expectations or drop 30% below expectations. In fact, even in 2008, 2009, one of the worst crises we've had, the collective earnings on the index were down about 20%. The earnings for the index, I mean, that's why we're, we're not talking about something that, you know, expectations can surge and fall dramatically. But earnings come from businesses. And those numbers can't be you know, that volatile, at least on a collective basis. For individual companies, all bets are off, mm-hmm. right? Because strange things can happen to individual companies. We're not talking individual companies. We're talking about 500 largest companies in the U.S. 
Well, that's really interesting. So I guess it speaks to the power of just, yeah, as you say, large numbers and uh, diversification. Professor, I'd like to, to revisit uh, the theme of uh, equity duration. Uh, uh, to the extent that uh, companies' cash flows are further out in the present, are they more impacted by inflation and higher bond yields, and, and why? No, I think inflation is a different story. As I said, it's about pricing power. It's less about how long-term or where the cash flows are. But if, you know, it's pure math, which is if you change the discount rate, the effect on value is going to be far greater for companies that have all of their cash flows way out in the future as opposed to right now. So at least in theory, when discount rates go up, holding all else constant, mature companies should do better, hold their value more than young growth companies. The reason I say in theory is that the equities, everything changes. That's why when rates go up and you ask me, what's the effect going to be on stocks? My answer is, I don't know. That sounds weird, right? You're saying if rates go up, shouldn't the value go down? I need to know why rates went up. Now, rates could go up because the economy is doing really well. Now, that's going to have mixed effects, right? The rates are going up, the discount rate goes up, but if the economy is doing really well, my earnings should also be going up. And maybe some of these young high growth companies are going to be able to survive and do much better because the economy is doing well. So I think, again, we're looking at symptoms rather than causes. So when people make these absolutely categorical statements of if interest rates go up, stock prices go down. First, I think they're being extraordinarily simplistic in that calculation because you've got to, you can't hold all else constant. And the second, they're fighting history. If you look at the track record of, or the correlation between changes in interest rates and changes in stock prices, it's not some huge negative number. So I think that you've got to be very careful when you hear these market gurus come out and say, hey, interest rates are going up, therefore stock prices will go down. Because you've got to ask, why are interest rates going up? because it can have very different consequences for value depending on whether they're going up because the economy is doing well, because inflation is increasing, or just because you know there's some perception in the market that's pushing them up. That's such an important point. In March of 2020, uh, risk-free rates that are the input to discount rates were at their lowest. And so interest rates rose from March of 2020 uh, for, for over a year into uh, the end of 2021, and stock prices rose with that. Uh, it wasn't until uh, this year that the rise in interest rates w w uh, corresponded to uh, a fall in, in equity valuations. Um, yeah, can you, can you speak to, so you, you said that it's because uh, it's 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 the it's the economy. Uh, it's it's why they're they're rising. So, do you think that there's a, a, a fundamental? It's a symptom, not the cause, right? I mean, it's a, basically, I think you have made my case perfectly for me. Remember March twenty third of twenty twenty? Why were rates so low? Because we shut down for COVID, and we really had no idea whether the global economy would be able to wake up from COVID. How big the damage would be? I mean, there was a perception that the end of the world was upon us that this was catastrophic. Rates were low, but equity risk premiums had popped up to almost 7.5%. So the expected return on stocks was actually higher in March of 2020 than in March of 2021 when rates had gone up by 
Why did they go up between March 2020 and March 2021? Because we decided that this was not the end of the world. The economy was going to come back. It was good news that was driving up rates. So that, and, and I think that again shows you why focusing on rates as if they're the be all and end all of the process can make you, can obscure the bigger story. The bigger story in March of 2020 was there was a crisis, a global crisis that people were afraid would take the economy down with it. By a year later, that crisis had passed for a lot of different reasons, one of which being that governments had pumped in trillions of dollars in the economy. So good news is we're out of the crisis. March of 22, why are we worried again? Because the trillions of dollars we pumped into the economy to keep us from going into a COVID crisis is now potentially going to show up as higher expected inflation. Three different stories at three different points in time. What's driving both stocks and rates is the same core story. In March of 2020, the big story was a COVID shutdown. March of 2021, the big story was the comeback. In March of 2022, the big story is inflation. Focus on the story and think about the outputs from the story. And rates are just an output from the story. They are not the story. And that's why I think when people get too focused on the rate, the rate, the rate, they're missing the big story. Focus on the big story. I talk a lot about this on, on this podcast and folks who I interview a lot about the big story, about inflation, the central banks, uh, the, the forward earnings, recession, inflation, what, you know, what this means. Uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for you, and I think of you as sort of the. As much as I love macro talk I, I, and analysis, I think that uh, valuation is something of a more refined art. So I, that, that's why I've been orienting and asking you about sort of the discount rate and interest rate. So uh, it, it's it's actually interesting that you keep on going back to sort of the narrative of forward earnings. So if if I had to ask you, Professor, uh, you know, why equity risk premium are so high. Uh, uh, what might you say? Is it the fear of central banks? Is it fear of, uh, in, in terms of they'll, they'll continue to hike? Is it a fear inflation will get out of control? Is it a fear that there is a recession? Is it a fear that all three of those things will will happen at the same time? And how, if if at all, do you you know quantitatively looking at an equity risk premium? How how do you extrapolate why uh, risk premium are expanding? Doesn't matter. I mean, I, I think in a sense sometimes. We spend so much time explaining things that we lose sight of what we have to do, which is we have to invest today in the world we're in. And I think we spend way too much time thinking through or overthinking these issues. It's a price of risk. It is what it is. If I have to go buy Facebook or Apple or NVIDIA today, I have to do it given the price of risk today. You define, uh, you know, you define valuation as a refined art. No, it's a pragmatic product. I have to buy or sell today. I don't have the luxury that a macroeconomist is, has of waving his hands and there could be a recession, it could be deep, it could be shallow, because I have to act and I have to act with my money today. I don't have the luxury of sitting here saying, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, ultimately I've got to bring all these hands together into a decision today. So if you think about you no know, risk premiums today, I think the, the driver for all, almost all of this year has been one force. And it's driving everything else. It's inflation. Until we have a clearer sense on inflation, everything else is going to be driven by inflation. So everything you mentioned is being driven by inflation. 
The Fed is acting because of inflation. We're worried about recessions because of inflation. Inflation is the, the bogeyman here. And until we get a clearer sense of where we will end up with inflation, we're going to have, you know, we're going to continue to see what we've seen for all of this year, which is markets either languishing or dropping because they can't quite make up their mind as to what the end game looks like here. To what degree uh, are equity prices more effective, affected by, let's say, real interest rates and others, inflation-adjusted two-year rates and uh sort of a component of that is what the market is pricing in for inflation. Uh, it's, it's not an expectation, it's just sort of a, a con condition. Um, and uh, to, to what degree has inflation this year, spot inflation, if we can call it, has been really high, but you haven't had a huge spike up in uh, inflation expectations. In other words, inflation expectations remain somewhat anchored. Uh, obviously, they are higher than they used to be. But if you look at, let's say, like the uh, 10 year inflation break even rate or the five year five year uh, forward inflation break even rate uh, people you know if you listen to a lot of macro podcasts uh, so it sounds like people think it's just the 1970s but looking at the actual plumbing of the market the market doesn't think that inflation is is around here to stay so uh, to what degree might it be a threat if inflation actually begins to be sort of priced in more in the future there's a good side and a bad side to markets doing what they're doing. It is true that the long-term expected inflation rate, while it's gone up, has not gone up as much as the actual inflation rate. So the long-term expected inflation rate, which you can get a market-based number to take the difference between the T-bond rate and the TIPS rate, has gone from like 1.5% to maybe 2.5%, got as high as close to 3%. But I think the reason for that is I think that the market believes that the Fed learned from the 1970s that Jerome Powell is more Paul Volcker than Arthur Burns. Arthur Burns was the Fed chair between 1970 and 78. And the Fed between 1970 and 78 would start to fight inflation and then give up and no one things got a little bad and then start to fight inflation. And it put us into the spiral of stagflation, of a badly performing economy with high inflation. And then Paul Volcker came along and he said, no economy can continue in the long term to be a healthy economy with this combination. So well, I'm going to put the economy into not just a recession, but into a steep recession and break the back of inflation. So the good news here is that markets are not building in the expectation that inflation will pop up to the 1970s level. The bad news is that the way the, the reason they do it is because they think the Fed will do whatever it takes for that not to happen. And the second should terrify you if you're looking for a job or you worry about your job, because if the only way to break inflation's back is to put the economy into a steep recession, and the market is saying that's what's going to get done. So if you go along with the market, the market's belief is the Fed is going to have the backbone to stay in this fight and bring inflation down, even if it means putting the economy into recession. Is that good for stocks? Well, keeping inflation low might be good, but putting the economy into a steep recession could potentially do serious damage to earnings and cash flows in future years. And that's why if you, if you believe, and Jerome Powell is giving every indication that they're serious about fighting inflation, the question then becomes, what will it take to beat inflation back? 
if you think a shallow recession would do it, then in a sense, that's your best case scenario, which is inflation will come down. There will be a recession, but it'll be mild and we'll all be okay. That's what was being priced in as short as three or four weeks ago. People were pricing in the expectation that inflation at the start of August, when it looked like markets were coming back again, the expectation was inflation is going to come down, it'll be a mild recession. But just in the last four weeks, that consensus seems to have broken again. So back to wondering what exactly this will mean. So we'll have to wait and see. There are a lot of unknowns here. We don't know whether the Fed will have the backbone to stay in the fight. We don't know what that will mean in terms of the economy. And we don't know translates into higher risk premiums and lower prices until we do know better. But I think we're going to see this continue for the next few months, perhaps into the next year. And a lot of folks uh, distinguish between supply side inflation. Uh, in other words, a ship going from Shanghai to Los Angeles can't can't make it. Uh, it's being delayed versus demand side inflation. There's been a lot of money printing, so there's more money. So the price of things is, is going up. It's not a versus. It's both, right? It's right. You know, and in a sense, we shouldn't make it an either or because then you say, okay, it's supply side. You don't have to worry about it. It's both. The, so nobody, I think even the people who are inflation hawks, nobody said inflation is going to be 9% a year forever. I think there was an acceptance even among people who were questioning the Fed last year. That no, the, the, that that some of this inflation or a chunk of it was due to supply chain and COVID issues. So let's put that on the table. Some of this is going to go away, but let's say only five percent of it goes away. We're still left with four percent inflation. We haven't seen four percent inflation in thirty years. Do companies know how to live with four percent inflation? Do employees know how to live with four percent inflation? It's a very different environment. So the question here is not whether inflation will stay at 9%. Nobody in their right mind believes that in the long term, 9% is going to be our steady state inflation. The difference of point of view is whether you think inflation is going to end up at 4% or 15 to 2%. The Fed insists that its aim is to push it back towards the latter. But there are some people who don't think the Fed will have the stomach to stay in this fight. And they're going to, I mean, they're the inflation hawks who believe that we're going to end up at 4% and 4% could potentially be catastrophic because that would mean T-bond rates of 5 or 6%. And we, it's not like we can't live with that because we've lived with that in the 1990s. It's that we have a generation of investors who don't know how to deal with those kinds of rates. We have a generation of CFOs who've used single-digit costs of capital now for 20 years. And they have to rethink the way we do things. So I think it's not a question of supply-driven or demand-driven. I think they're both issues here. The question is how much of each is contributing to what we're seeing as actual inflation. For all of my adult life, or I said the vast majority of my uh, adult life, uh, inflation has been higher than interest rates. But actually going back to the 1970s, that historically is not the case. Uh, inflation, uh, inflation was substantially below interest rates on the two-year, the overnight rate, the 10-year, sort of wherever you want on the yield curve. Uh, if we were to take that historical example and oppose it to now, that would mean that interest rates would be you know, higher than 8 or 9%. Do you th uh, how uh, serious of a possibility do you think it is that uh, sort of 
interest rates will be higher than inflation and will have uh, sort of positive real rates. And, and to what degree do you think that affects the invest, investment landscape? Are we talking about actual inflation or expected inflation? Actual inflation yeah. can be whatever, right? In the 1970s, actual inflation was higher than interest rates every year because until your expectations catch up. But if you think about expected inflation, interest rates always have to be higher than expected inflation. Otherwise, why would you buy a bond? If you thought expected inflation was 5%, would you ever buy a bond with an interest rate of 3%? So ex post, after the fact, anything can happen. Inflation can be higher than interest rates. It can be lower than interest rates. A lot of that is driven by how our expectations adjust over time. In the 1970s, the reason inflation ran ahead of interest rates is people's expectations change a lot slower than the actual numbers come in. So for the early part of that inflation wave, people thought this, this is just temporary. It's going to be gone next month. It's just oil prices pushing it up. It's just gas prices pushing it up. So if, this is, if you're getting a sense of deja vu and you think about 2020, you know, early 2021 when people started talking about inflation, they said it's all supply chains, it'll all go away, which is the reason T-bond rates actually stayed pretty much unchanged through, 20, through the first half or even the first three quarters of 2021, is the consensus was, hey, this is temporary, it's all supply chain. 2022 has brought in the realization that there is a demand component to it as well. So I think what you observe, what you observe in practice, is that inflation can run above interest rates for extended periods when expectations are climbing but not climbing fast enough. They can go in the opposite direction as they did in the 1980s when expectations of inflation had become high, but it took a long time for them to believe that inflation had come down. So it took almost six years for inflation for 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 interest rates to come down to the actual inflation number. It just reflects the fact that as human beings, we are slow to change our expectations because we're so caught up by looking at the past. Now, so I think that um, expected inflation is what, what matters here. That's why until we get a sense of actual inflation converging on expected inflation, there's going to be this uncertainty that's driving both the bond market and the stock market. You said that there's a, a lot of CFOs who are might not be prepared for the cost of capital being higher than it was over the past decade after the great financial crisis. Uh, what is the cost of capital? And if the cost of capital is higher than it has been over the past decade, how does that impact the uh, profitability and valuations of certain companies, perhaps their, their technology companies, uh, that thrived when there was a lot of cheap money? It's the other side of the glass, right? So when I said equity investors demand a premium for buying stock, an equity risk premium, and it becomes an expected return on stocks. Guess where all that money goes? It goes to companies as equity. So when they think about what's our cost of raising financing, that's their cost. So when you demand a 9% return on equity, it becomes their cost of equity. So cost of capital is just a weighted average of what you as a company are paying your equity investors a cost of equity and what you're paying your lenders, which is your cost of debt. So the same forces that make equities more attractive or less attractive to you and I as equity investors play out as cost of equity and cost of capital for companies. It's their cost of financing. And if you're running a business and it costs you 9% to raise capital, guess what? You got to go out and take projects that make more than 9%. 
The cost of capital becomes what businesses need to make on their investments, whether you build a new factory is driven by it. So when costs of capital go from 6 to 9%, as they have over the course of this year, that changes the way we think about new investments. It might mean you don't build a factory you'd plan to build at the start of this year. It's no longer passing muster. There are consequences to cost of capital changing. If inflation goes up, perhaps you, your factory can now, but you can already see that businesses with pricing power will still be able to find investments at a higher cost of capital. But if you're a business with, with you know, very little pricing power, you're not going to hold back. That's the real economic effect of inflation. As inflation goes up and becomes more unstable, the economy reinvests less. It's, that's why high and unstable inflation is so difficult for an economy to overcome. You know, so it's not just investors who are affected by this. It's businesses. It's the economy. Everything gets affected by inflation. It's corrosive. It undercuts everything you do at its core because of what it does to the way you think about investments and the way you invest in them. So far, we've talked about equity risk premium um, for indices, the S&P 500. Let's talk about cost of capital for individual companies. And uh, to the extent that there's a company that is, so the S&P 500, right, it's only down 18, 20% right right now, uh, maybe a little bit less than that. And so the cost of capital went from somewhere you said up to 9%. What about a company that's you know really speculative, went public during this uh, time of ample liquidity of 2020, 2021, and when it went public, it didn't have a dime of revenue uh, in, at the time it went public, and you know it may not. It may be a pre-revenue company for years to come. Uh, uh, if, to the extent that you have these companies that are down 70, 80, 90 percent, what does the uh, why is the valuation down so much? Is it because people uh, nothing to do with the cost of capital? It's okay, nothing okay. to do with the cost of capital. It's not a risk. It's not that the discount rate went up. One is what you're talking about: 70, 80 percent is a pricing effect. Let's go back to 2019. I, I mean, I valued a lot of these companies. And at that time, I concluded that many of them were overvalued by 50, 60, 70%. Pricing can sometimes take leave of its senses. Why? Mm -hmm. Because demand, supply, mood, momentum can push the price up. So some of this adjustment is people waking up and saying, hey, you know what? I really overdid this. So some of this has nothing to do with the cost of capital. The cost of capital could have stayed at 6% and you could have come to this realization. The second is many of these companies need capital just to keep going, right? You describe them as money losing. They're actually cash flow negative companies because not only are they money losing, they need huge amounts of new capital to be able to survive. Forget about growth. So if the market turns down as it has this year, it brings with it a side effect, which is risk capital goes to the sidelines. Risk capital includes um, not just people investing in the riskier stocks, but venture capital money. Why? Because when you get scared, those people get scared even more. So for young companies, there are two things that have happened. One is expectations have finally caught up with reality, which is people overestimated what these companies could do. The second is people are worried about survival. Will these companies make it? Will they be able to survive and be still around until risk capital comes back? So part of the reason you're going to see a bigger adjustment in these companies is because you're not worried about a Coca-Cola going under just because risk capital, because they don't need the capital. They can survive a market downturn. But you do worry about a Peloton going under. 
you might have great hopes for the future, but it's got to survive to get to those great hopes. So I think the reason you see a bigger effect when, when you get these adjustments on those companies, it's, a, it's, a, it's three forces. One is what it does to the expected cash flows if the economy is weakening. Will people spend $2,500 for a Peloton bike when they're worrying about their jobs? The second is what it does in terms of will the company survive? And the third is the overall effect on cost of, of a 9% cost, even if they have exactly the same cost of capital the overall effect on their values is going to be greater because they're far more in cash flows in the future. So I think people often think that when you have something like this, that the cost of capital for these companies has magically jumped up. It hasn't. It's just that it has a much bigger impact on them because of the kinds of companies they are. And that's what you're seeing playing out markets. So many companies have gone down in, in value, so many stocks, I should say, uh, during 2022, a standout that have stocks have gone up are commodity stocks and in particular energy stocks that uh, uh, create oil and natural gas. How do you go about valuing uh, a, a company that takes something out of the ground and sells it, sells a commodity, when the value of that commodity is extremely volatile, right? Because Apple, you know, they just announced their their new iPhone and uh, you know, their Apple obviously it's going to they're going to increase prices over time, and they have a you know, somewhat stable business model. But if you're you know uh, putting up capital to to drill something out of the ground that's not going to be out of the ground for many years to come, and that thing could be anywhere from one hundred and twenty five dollars to negative forty seven or negative thirty seven dollars. Uh, are, are are risk premia higher in that in that sector? No, because it's part of your portfolio. If we put all your money in an oil company, of course you should worry about this. But you'd be crazy or stupid to do it. That's why when you invest in commodity stocks, it's always going to be in the context of a portfolio. And the advantage of having commodity stocks in a portfolio is sometimes the forces that make those stocks do well will be the forces that for, that make the rest of your market do badly. And this here is a perfect example. The forces that are pushing up commodity stocks Partly the Russian invasion of Ukraine and partly inflation. When you have inflation, commodity companies tend to do well because the price flows through. So if you have a commodity stock in your portfolio, it often moves, if not in directions different from the rest, in, you know, in, in at least in, I know it, it doesn't move as much with the rest of your portfolio. So there's no point worrying about oil prices swing. This is as old as time. Commodity prices have always gone up and down. As long as you make commodity companies a portion of your portfolio, all you can do is take the expected oil price and value oil companies based on that, and then go to bed and get a good night's sleep, knowing that tomorrow the oil price could be higher than you expected or lower than you expected. But either way, you're going to be okay because it's not 80% of your portfolio or 100% of your portfolio, it's 10% of your portfolio. So keep that in perspective. Commodity companies have always been susceptible to commodity prices. It doesn't make them good or bad investments. It just means that standalone investments, they're very risky. That's why when you have a private oil business owned by somebody, that person swings from being a billionaire to bankrupt, back to being a billionaire. And anybody who's grown up in Texas or lived in Texas can probably tell you about days when, you know, where, where you know, everybody in Houston has lots of money to spend. And things have changed since. You know, Houston is a much more diverse economy. But this has always been the case for people who put all their money in commodity companies. It's feast or famine. 
And as an investor, you don't want to be caught up in that feast of famine component. You've got to kind of level things out. Uh, how do you estimate the forward earnings of oil companies if they're so dependent on, on a commodity price? Because you know, if you knew the future of the commodity price, it would be pretty easy to make money. If you knew that oil would be 70 bucks for the entire year of 2023, you just, I guess, you know, sell WTI calls at, at 90 and uh, sell, you know, you, you just make, you know, if you knew where the price of oil was, you'd make a lot of money. Um, and also, you comment on the fact that, so for example, these companies are making a lot of money now, uh, but they might not make money in the future, whereas in March, April 2020, the, their future looked very bleak, uh, but that was actually the, the best time to, to, to invest in them. And also, can you comment? Sorry, on uh, when you when you get a, a an estimate of a, of the future price, do you take it from like the forward curve, or do you look at you know economist estimates and have a uh, aggregate them, or, or how do you sort of estimate that? The forward curve is just the spot price, which would store. I mean, remember this is a storable commodity, right? So it's not like the forward curve is giving you information about what people will expect the prices in the future to be. It's different if you're investing in wheat or non-storable commodity. But in a storable commodity like oil, there's not that much information in the forward curve. And, I, and forget about economist forecasts. You know, that's, it's a waste of time and a waste of money. You know, remember your statistics. If you're trying to forecast something where there's a lot of uncertainty, but you don't know in which direction, can you give me an expected value? We do it all the time. Start of every baseball season, what do we do? We estimate the expected number of games that a team is going to win. In hindsight, we look back and say, I was really wrong on that one. But we make estimates in, in real life on lots of things. I mean, think of insurance. insurance. How does the insurance company know how long you will live? They don't. They make an estimate. So I think this notion of there's a lot of uncertainty, so therefore I cannot make an estimate strikes me as going against the face of everything I've been taught in statistics. If I'm an oil company, you've got to make an estimate. That estimate, if you don't want to take a point of view of oil prices into the analysis, has to be based on what the current price is. And you value the oil company, you're going to get a conditional valuation. Conditional in what sense? This is the value of your company given what the price is today. Could that change tomorrow? Absolutely. What's going to cause it to change? The oil price could go up 10%. Investing in commodity companies is always a conditional investment. Now, of course, there's another perspective you can bring to commodity companies, which is you decide that you're going to forecast a commodity price, let's say oil prices, and going to put your forecasts of oil prices into evaluation and use it to decide whether... Be very careful when you do it because then you're making a joint bet. Let's say you value Royal Dutch and you've used your forecast at oil prices. In your forecast, you think oil prices are going to double over the next five years. You're very upbeat about oil prices. You find Royal Dutch to be undervalued. You get ready to buy the stock. And I stop you and say, are you buying Royal Dutch because you like Royal Dutch? Or are you buying Royal Dutch because you think oil prices will double over the next five years? And you say, why does it matter? You see why it matters? If it's because of the latter... I have a far simpler way for you to make money. If you're that good at forecasting oil prices, what the heck are you doing forecasting Royal Dutch earnings and cash flows and contaminating your analysis? Just go buy oil futures. So here's my advice to you. If you're really good at forecasting commodity prices, stop valuing companies. Go buy commodity futures and options. You're going to be rich in no time at all. 
The problem is the track record of people who claim to forecast commodity prices will make people, astrologers and soothsayers look good. It's horrendously bad because in a sense, there are things that you cannot ever forecast. I mean, think of Russia invading Ukraine. Who forecast that two years ago? Nobody did. I'm not going to blame them for not forecasting it, but that's exactly the kind of thing that you see at commodity in commodity prices that cannot be forecasted. So, you know, sometimes it's hubris to forecast prices in the face of that much macro uncertainty. Make your best estimates, base it off the current price, and move on. Hmm. Uh, Professor, I've encountered the uh, uh, belief that uh, you know, valuations tend to increase when central banks are buying assets via quantitative easing, and there tends to be pressure on uh, valuation prices and, and risk premia, risk sentiment, uh, when central banks are shrinking their balance sheet, like the Federal Reserve is uh, now, I believe, $95 billion a month um, as of September. Uh, what does your scholarly work or sort of the, the scholarship indicate uh, on a, an analytical rigorous framework uh, to what degree that is actually true, and uh, also is how um, impacted is the the equity risk premium by liquidity? It's amazing how the Fed did it has become the excuse for pretty much everything that people have screwed up on over the last fourteen years, right? As portfolio managers, why have had such a tough time meeting it? It's a Fed did it. I think we need to stop. Do central banks have an effect on valuations at the margin? Yes. But centrally, no. I mean, in a sense, you know, what central banks do with their playing around, and I think they, 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 they came awfully close to playing around too much in the interest rate market, is by intervening in markets, they can push the interest rate below what I think of as an intrinsic interest rate. What's an intrinsic interest rate? I told you that as a bond buyer, you've got to build an expected inflation and an expected real interest rate. And that's how you come up with, a, with an interest rate in a bond. The central banks can have an effect on that interest rate by going in and doing things like quantitative easing. The effect is actually a lot milder than you think. I mean, in the last 14 years, my estimate is the Fed has made rates about 30 basis points lower than it should be with their quantitative easing. So the rate should have been 3%. It's made it 2.7%. And the that is good for stocks because in a sense, by it's like subsidizing investors. The Fed has been subsidizing investors. and say, uh, at the, But there's a price you pay, right? That subsidizing inter, investors, somebody's paying the subsidy. The Fed doesn't pay it. The subsidies being paid by savers in fixed income securities, right? So if you're older and you had your money in a fixed deposit, you've been subsidizing equity investors. It's been paid by taxpayers in, 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 a, in an indirect way. And eventually we all pay for it if it ultimately pays, it shows up as higher inflation. Nothing is costless in this world. So quantitative easing, quantitative uneasing, whatever you decide to call it, has an effect. The effect is smaller than we think it is, but it has been a subsidy for markets. And that subsidy is disappearing. And that's part of the adjustment process we've got to go through, is as that subsidy disappears, even the 30 basis points is, has, an, has an effect on value. 
we have to learn to live in a world where we have to stand on our own two feet without the Fed kind of holding us up along the way. Mm. So you said that you think quantitative easing makes uh, bonds 30 basis points sort of artificially uh, cheap. At least in the last 14 14 years, that's what the effect is. If you take inflation plus real growth and you compare it to the actual T-bond rate, the actual T-bond rate has been about 30 basis points lower than that intrinsic rate that you get from inflation and real growth. So that's, I think, a measure of how much it's a Fed effect. Mm-hmm. And that Fed effect is going to disappear. The problem is, as you try to unwind it, you could actually end up from going 30 basis points below to 30 basis points above, right? It's not, you're not going to go to zero because in a sense, there is an effect of selling all those bonds in your portfolio. And that's your worry is what that swing is going to be above your intrinsic rate. And that's the other big unknown that's kind of hanging over us. But guess what? You have a party, you have a hangover. This is part of that hangover. We had a 14-year party, and it's time for the hangover. <laughs> there we go. Uh, so you're saying that, uh, yeah, uh, QE has made bonds uh, 30 basis points artificially cheap. Uh, to what degree is that the the yield itself, or something called the term premium? Because I know actually, um, uh, what's it called? Quote empirically, it's and uh, you know, p- please correct me. Uh, during periods of quantitative easing, Treasury bond yields actually tend to fall. So when the Fed is buying bonds, excuse me, they tend to rise. So when the, the Treasury uh, Fed is buying bonds, when you're and buying bonds, the price of the bond goes up, the yield always goes down. Right. Right. The yield so, always has to go down. It's, it goes in the opposite direction. So when you go, when the Fed goes out and buys bonds, the price of the bond goes up. But the yield goes down. That's the 30 basis point subsidy you're seeing. Right? right. The interest rate you'll observe on the bond will become lower because you've pushed up the price of the bond. Oh, okay, That's how but the subsidy is, shows up. Isn't it true that during periods of quantitative easing, the nominal level of, tr- of treasury yields actually tend to rose, which is the opposite of what you would yeah. expect? No, okay. That's not true. They, they drop. Okay. But in a sense, the periods when you initiated these were periods of crises, but no, they always drop. You know, okay. I, I can't think of a period of quantitative easing where yields actually went up because of quantitative easing. There might have been another force right, driving right. it. No, but I'm thinking of 2008 and 2009. Remember, T-bond rates went from 4.5% to 1.6%, right? So I right. can't think of a significant period of quantitative easing where yields did not drop. Right. And so you said that everyone likes to blame the Fed, but then you also said that the, the uh, party's over, we need a hangover. How significant do you think QE or QT is, is an impact on uh, uh, valuations? Far less than inflation. Far less than inflation. Far less than inflation. And I've been, I think over, you know, the last 14 years, it's a player, but it's never been the main player in the game in good ways or bad ways. So to me, that's why I think by putting the Fed front and center, by worrying so much about what the Fed, Federal Open Market Committee is thinking, why think, you know, overthinking or overanalyzing Jerome Powell's every word, we're getting distracted from looking at the true macroeconomic variables that drive value. The Fed has become this all-powerful being that can set interest rates, decide what's going to happen to the economy. But if that were the case, we'd never have a recession. We'd never have it in the 1970s. Central banks are not that powerful. And that's why last year when inflation first started, I said we need to act quickly because if inflation gets out of control, 
Central banks are far less powerful than you think in stopping inflation. Central banks by themselves can't stop inflation. They've got to put the economy, in a sense, you've got to shoot yourself in the knee simply because you think you're walking too fast. You know, you had to put yourself in a recession just so. We overestimate the power that central banks have. And I think we do it because it makes us feel more comfortable thinking that there's this all-powerful entity that can come and save us. If you're truly in high inflation, a central bank can't save you. Wow. Uh, scary thought. Professor, you draw a very clear line between the value of certain assets and the prices of certain assets. And you know, sometimes that line can be very hazy. So we've talked about the values of stocks and bonds, whereas the prices, we can observe them uh, in the market every day. Mm -hmm. But then there are assets that it's, uh, I think you've said it's impossible to ascribe a value to them. Uh, those would include currencies, I think. Um, those would include crypto and, and perhaps... Let's start, let's start easier. I mean, what's the value of a Picasso? <laughs> There's actually you know, the San Diego Museum. They have the Impressionist painting exhibit here. There's a Picasso there. You know, what's the value of a Picasso? Right? If you think of cash flows, growth, and risk, obviously it's not going to... You buy a Picasso, it's not throwing cash flows at you. There's no growth. There's, but I can price a Picasso, Right? How do I price a Picasso? By looking at what other people are paying for Picassos of the same vintage. So collectibles, you know, fine art, baseball cards, you can only price, you can't value. Why? Because they don't produce cash flows. By extension, gold cannot be valued. It can only be priced against financial assets. The reason you hold gold is because you don't trust paper currencies. And if you think about a currency and you ask me, what's the value of a dollar? I have no idea, but I can tell you what the price of a dollar is. That's what an exchange rate is. Good currencies increase their pricing relative to bad currencies over a period. The Venezuelan Bolivar is a terrible currency. You know how it plays out? The exchange rate between any reasonable currency in the Bolivar always moves in one direction. The Bolivar gets weaker and weaker and weaker because it's a bad currency. Currencies cannot be valued because they're not assets. Can I create an asset with the currency? Obviously, when I create a bond, it's denominated in dollars, but I'm not buying dollars. I'm buying a contractual claim, interest payments on the bond. Currencies cannot be valued. They can only be priced. And the reason I, you know, I, I had to make that statement was because I've been asked repeatedly over the last 14 years whether I think Bitcoin is undervalued or overvalued. And my response strikes many people as a cop-out. I say, Bitcoin cannot be valued. And he says, is it because there's too much uncertainty? No, it's got nothing to do with uncertainty. I mean, let's take the two claims that Bitcoin advocates make about Bitcoin. First is, it's a currency. Okay, if it's a currency, then I can't value it. I can price it. When I look at the price of Bitcoin, I'm getting an exchange rate between Bitcoin and US dollars, Bitcoin and euros. What should drive that exchange rate? That should be driven by how good or bad a currency Bitcoin is. And that's something you can measure, right? The quality of a currency is a function of how often it gets used as a medium of exchange. And on that dimension, Bitcoin is an abysmally bad currency. If you're, even if you're a believer in Bitcoin, tell me the last time you paid for something with Bitcoin, a house, a car, a coffee. Bitcoin is hardly ever used as a currency. And people can say claim it's a conspiracy, but it's got more to do with the way it's been designed and how inefficient it's been as a currency. 
The other claim for Bitcoin is it's a collectible. It's like gold. Remember, I told you we can't value gold. You can only price it. So let's price Bitcoin as a collectible. What makes for a good collectible? It holds its value during crises and when paper currencies are losing value. Gold is a time-tested collectible. Through thousands of years, it's held its value through crises. It goes up when stocks are down. But Bitcoin has been a terrible collectible. So to me, the problem is not so much that, you know, about Bitcoin as a digital currency. It's been a terrible currency. It's been a not so good collectible. So what the heck are you paying $20,000 for? Right. So uh, I'm... I apologize for me being a pedant like I'm about to be, but you did say gold holds its value during periods of inflation, not hold its price. So you don't you don't mean the value. Yeah, you mean the price, right? It is is the price. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, uh, Gold is a commodity. Gold is actually a commodity which has uses, right? You make it for use of jewelry. There are things I think you need gold for because of its um, because of the fact that um, it no, it's almost impossible to completely destroy gold. You can melt it into other shapes. So as a commodity, maybe there is a value that comes from demand and supply. But I'll wager that value is so much lower than the price of gold as a collectible that the value effect is completely dominated by the price there. And how do you distinguish between it's impossible to value something, like it's impossible to value the euro, uh, or it's impossible to value Bitcoin. But on the other hand, when there's a lot of money printing, Bitcoin kind of prices go up. And when there's uh, you know, less money printing, like now, Bitcoin prices tend to go down and you know, it become correlated to stocks. That's a bad sign. That's a bad sign for Bitcoin, right? Because when you print money, you're pushing up inflation. If inflation goes up, for a collectible, you should see the price go up. In fact, you've seen the opposite effect in Bitcoin. I'm not sure that you the, the point you made about when you print more money, Bitcoin prices go up. I, think, I don't think it has anything to do with printing money. Bitcoin goes up when stock markets are buoyant, when, every, every other, when risk capital is in the game, Bitcoin goes up. In other words, it goes up whenever. In fact, I'd wager, and I've done this actually through 2021, that if you looked at the correlation between Bitcoin prices and tech company stock prices, the correlation is high and positive. It behaves like a very risky tech stock, mm-hmm. which is not the way a collectible should behave. So that's not a plus for Bitcoin. It's a minus because you wanted to behave well when tech companies are down, not when tech companies are up. So it actually undercut, undercuts Bitcoin's appeal. as a, So to me, what, what it suggests is Bitcoin is actually something that peop, that risk capital invests in because they have a lot of money on their hands. So it does well when risk capital is in the game. It does badly when risk capital is out of the game. In the world of currencies, uh, so you can't value the euro against the dollar, but you can when- price the euro. That's what an exchange rate is, right? So when you look at the euro-dollar exchange rate, you are getting a pricing. So all exchange rates are pricing, are currency pricing. We are making a judgment on good versus bad currencies. Right. And that can be observed in the market. But to what degree are there also sort of macro drivers for currencies? Like, in the other words, uh, if inflation in the U.S. is uh, uh, low and in the euro it's high, the dollar will strengthen. Likewise, if uh, the interest rates in, in the that's, U.S. That's rise... Part of, that's part of the measure of a good currency, right? There are two right. things you measure a currency on. One is how good is it as a medium of exchange? 
The second is how good is it as a store of value? If you have a currency with 15% inflation, it's not that good as a store of value. You put $100 into your pocket, it's worth $85 a year from now in terms of what you can buy with it. So one measure of the goodness of a currency is what the inflation rate in that currency is. The Swiss franc is one of the best currencies in the world. It's a medium of exchange anywhere in the world. I can use it not just to buy things in Switzerland, but if I leave Switzerland, I can walk into any bank anywhere in the world, off, you know, put 100 Swiss francs across, the, and, and the bank will replace it with the local currency. And it's an incredible store of value. I actually left Zurich, I think, in 2015 with 100 Swiss francs in my pocket, came back in 2017 to Switzerland. And guess what? I was able to buy pretty much the same things in 2017 as 2015 because it's an economy with almost no inflation. So we talk about currencies being priced against each other. Bad currencies are currencies with high inflation, not good mediums of exchange, will get priced lower and lower over time. They will see their exchange rates deteriorate over time. So I think that when you think about the goodness or badness of currencies, it shows up in that pricing equation, the exchange rate that you observe between the currencies. Mm. Can you make long-term quote investment decisions on currencies that you, th you say it's impossible to value in the same way you would on stocks and bonds, uh, given drivers such as, like, let's say right now, the Japanese yen, uh, either, you know, interest rates are very low. And all across the yield curve, there's yield curve control. So the Bank of Japan is not allowing uh, Japanese government bonds yields to increase. As And the dollar, yields have exploded higher. So money is sort of sucked into the US. And as such, the, the currency depreciates. Uh, is that kind of a fundamental driver of the price in the same way that equity risk premia or risk-free rates are drivers of equity valuations? And You're going to the heart of the carry, uh, the carry trade, where you borrow money and in low interest rate currencies and you invest in high interest rate currencies. Seems like uh, easy money, right? You borrow money in yen at 1%. The problem is, over the last 30 years, the carry trade has been, at best, a zero profit trade. Because there's always fundamentals again. I mean, just as we talked about interest rates in the U.S. and other fundamentals that drive it. So I think that you could, if you feel comfortable doing it, forecast exchange rates. And if you're good at it, you could make a ton of money. But again, the empirical data suggests that the people who try this, even people who claim to be the professionals, have a terrible time trying to make money on it. Because, I mean, let's put it this way. It's a very... it's um, it's a very asymmetric investment strategy. Most of the time you make money on the carry <laughs> trade. Mm -hmm. But then you get that ca catastrophic event. So it's one of those investment strategies where it looks like you found a sure thing until the whole thing blows up in your face. It's one of the most dangerous investment strategies out there precisely for that reason. So I think you can trade currencies, and even if you claim to have made money over a long period, I'm going to look ask and say what you've done for a simple reason. To make money in investing, you've got to bring something to the table. What exactly are you and I going to bring to the table in forecasting exchange rates that's new or different or a niche? I don't. That's why I don't forecast exchange rates. I know they're going to change. That's the only thing I can predict, but I have no idea in which direction. Mm. Professor, it's been an absolute pleasure um, having you on Forward Guidance. Thank you so much. People can uh, follow you on on Twitter at Oswath the Motorin. I really recommend they check out your 
uh, content that you, you share widely online. Uh, your YouTube channel has excellent videos, which I've learned a lot from. You know, tens of millions of people have seen them. Um, and then also, your your website has uh, your lectures and as well as the data, which is very important to download. You know, sometimes you hear people talk about data, but you don't have access. So, folks, if they want to learn more, they definitely should check out your website, Professor. My final question for you is: My, my uh, I first asked you about you know, you know the, sort of the sleep test, which is kind of advice for investors: don't uh, own anything if it doesn't pass the sleep test. Uh, what if anything? Uh, so would you have advice for investors about sort of behavioral mistakes that they often make that you think uh, is to their detriment? So overconfidence, right? As human beings, we tend to be overconfident about the things we think we know. And when you're overconfident, you do things that end up biting you. You know, I've always argued against concentrating your portfolio. Many value investors think you should buy five or six and they use the word, don't you feel enough confidence in your picks that you know why go beyond five? To me, that's hubris. We're overconfident as human beings and our capacity to find winners, I'd say, be less confident in, in your capacity to find success. Or, and, you know, little, a, a humili- I mean, investing, I think humility is, is, I think, the quality that'll help you the most in the long term, recognizing that there are too many things out of your control for you to be able to control what the returns in your portfolio are going to be over a period. The good news then is you don't start to beat yourself up every time you make a mistake. You don't, you're not making mistakes because you didn't do your homework. Sometimes things are going to happen that are out of your control and you've got to be willing to let go. Wonderful. Professor, thank you so much. You're welcome. There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks Daily newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks Daily newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter.